Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And for today's episode, we're going to be continuing the theme that we kicked off last week. That is the transatlantic left and this emerging movement to found a new politics and economics for the socialist left. It's an incredibly exciting time to be on the socialist left today. In a sense, I think I speak for myself here, but I think I can also speak for my guest here in a moment, that we feel a little spoiled at times, that generations before us have toiled in the darkness trying to keep the flame alight, and here we are just having all of these opportunities handed to us. But I think it's quite clear that we are not squandering those opportunities, and my guest today is prime in, in the generation, in my generation, of thinkers and doers who are acting on these opportunities in really bold ways. And so I'm going to talk to him about that at length. Joining me today is Matthew Lawrence. He's the director and founder of Commonwealth, which is a new think tank coming out of the Corbinite left. And he is very much involved in this budding transatlantic left project. He's talking about democratic ownership of firms, and he's whispering in the ear of some of our politicians here in the United States. We're going to talk to him about that. Matt Lawrence, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So we first crossed paths, uh, met up through a mutual friend, Grace Blakely. Uh, shout out to we Grace. Did, yes. <laughs> shout out to Grace. Has been on Dead Pundit Society a couple of times. I'd say, yeah, yeah. And uh, you were in Washington D.C. several months ago. I spoke about this last week with Joe Guinan, and you and Joe and a couple other people were whispering in the ears of policymakers and staffers and politicians in the United States. The majority of my audience is in the U.S. We'll definitely be returning to the U.K. context very shortly. But let's start here in the States. What were you up to in Washington, D.C.? And whose ears were you whispering into? Because it seems to be bearing fruit already. Well, it's um, it's useful to follow on from Joe in some ways. And um, so Joe Guinan, for those who didn't listen last week, is a senior figure over at the Democracy Collaborative and central to this transatlantic left you mentioned, and this idea of an emerging democratic economy that seeks to sort of transform and democratise ownership and control. And Joe and I have been sort of you know, scheming away for a number of years now, um, toiling, as you say, Joe a little longer than me. And I was over in DC um, with a number of actually other sort of people from the UK left, um, partly around sort of questions of ownership, partly around questions of strategy. But we were meeting up with progressives uh, on the Hill, but also in the sort of widest sort of, sort of new socialist, new left movement in the US. I think our particular focus was in and around these questions of how can you transform corporate wealth, which is obviously extraordinarily concentrated in the US. How do you transform institutionally? What are the socialist institutions of transformation that can be viable politically and strategically, but also aren't just sort of, you know, tinkering at their margins, but actually have the capacity for deep shifts in where wealth and power flows in American society. So we were sort of, you know, talking with a lot of the usual suspects and we hope to continue that dialogue because I think one of the things that I think is important, I think, you know, obviously the special relationship is, well, it can wreak havoc, but it also can be obviously overplayed particularly in the UK mythology, you know, too many people obsessed with the West Wing. But I think clearly right. there is like a history there where, you know, there is this, you know, Thatcherism was a prefigurer and an experiment for some of the sort of new right and Reaganism in the US and the sort of the right would turn. And similarly, you know, the sort of Clintonism and New Labourism, I think there were sort of parallel shared learning, shared practices. And I think it's, you know, that visit, so it's been a couple of visits now, and the sort of broader ecology meshing together, I think is going to be an important part in sort of spurring each other on in terms of ambition and in terms of scale in terms of learning. I think one final thing to end on is that you know, it is important to stress that the transatlantic left is definitely late to the party. You know, we've got a lot to learn and uh, much to sort of, you know, draw on and also give to why the left movements have been struggling against neoliberalism and extractive capitalism a lot longer and more successfully in some ways than us. So there's a lot to learn, but I think there's also sort of this kernel of hope around so the institutions that we're focusing on and the political strategy that's being developed off the back of it. It's undoubted that we're a little late to the game, but as they say, better late than never. 
And I think it's it's quite timely for this upsurge in the United States with the popularity of Bernie Sanders and his prospects for 2020. And of course, a Corbyn government, which looks on the brink, uh, you know, if it's up to Boris, uh, sorry, uh, Boris Johnson, we don't want to give him the credit of having the yeah. the single name. Uh, he's, he's no, know he's no Madonna. The thing about Johnson is to his friends, he's actually called Alexander, I think. So this but Boris is literally uh, a sort of a figure of his imagination, a political, I mean, obviously, like, his, I think it's his middle name, but none of his actual personal close friends apparently called him Boris. And so it is this sort of conjecturing of this sort of, you know, populist right figure, which I think is quite a telling insight into his sort of, into his mentality and political sort of, you know, schizophrenia. I hadn't realized that. So it's just a projection of his own yeah. ego. It's very bizarre. So even more of a reason not to call him Boris, people. It's Johnson. So John, if it's up to Johnson, I mean, he's going to blow it. I mean, I think there's, there's no doubt that uh, he doesn't have the strategic wit to hold that convoluted and complex coalition together in the midst of uh, fractious Brexit debates. Uh, so th that's just to say that uh, Corbyn is quite likely on the brink of power. There are a tremendous uh, amount of troubles inside of the, the, the British Labour Party right now. We will have to leave those off to the side for the moment. But that's just to say that this is all quite timely. Talk to us about the formation of Commonwealth. You are the director and founder of that project. You had a quite ceremonious rollout, very impressive stuff. You've got some big names in your board of directors. Talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, you know, for my sins, I've been in and around sort of, I guess, the progressive left sort of think tank policy space for a little while now. Um, I worked on the Institute for Public Policy Research's Commission on Economic Justice, which is where Grace uh, works. And that sort of tried it. John McDonald, the Labour Shadow Chancellor, he said that was the, the beverage report of his generation, the final report, which kind of set out a sweeping attempt to irreversibly shift sort of how the economy operated and for whom in terms of both sort of social and environmental justice. So that was sort of, and in that, in that sort of project, I was focusing in and around these questions of ownership, of control, of how do you democratise wealth, how do you democratise sort of the workings of power, both in the workplace and society. And then, so that was, you know, a broad base of, sort of you know, work that had been going on. And it just seemed very clear to me that this really was the hidden nub, that it's sort of ownership, you know, which shapes income rights, control rights of wealth, and therefore the political and social power that flows from that, the control rights, the private power that derives from the pattern of property relations we have today. That really felt like the hidden piece in a wider ecology, you know, it's obviously not the only piece, but a hidden piece in a wider ecology that takes in taking on sort of high finance, sort of the environmental crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And that it was in some ways sort of a hidden nodal point that we needed to get under the skin of and surface and begin to design, not just after the fact interventions around how ownership models generate outcomes, but actually transform ownership from the inside. And I think one of the sort of key drivers of the idea to create this was this report I wrote for NEF, which is another sort of think tank in the UK on the broad aggressive environmental left called uh, Copters Unleashed, which sort of had a series of policies around transforming ownership through ownership funds, which then have got sort of subsequent traction. And that kind of gave the opening, I think, to you know, push forwards with creating Commonwealth, this idea of having a really niche but systemic focused sort of think tank drawing on the talent of the wider movement, which is a real strength. It's not just, you know, it's, it's absolutely not just sort of a small core of Sort of thinkers sitting around in London. It's you know there's practitioners and doers and makers across the UK now, sort of prefiguring change. So Commonwealth is an attempt to be a sort of almost a platform for looking at ownership in a deep systemic way, and then trying to pluralize that out to sort of you know the Westminster political scene, but I think more broadly, you know, across the transatlantic left, but then you know across to the institutions at scale in British society. So sell us on this aspect of ownership. I've read I've read a lot of Marx. I've spent uh, the better part of a decade in dusty meeting halls with socialists before it was cool. Uh, not a lot of those types of people like to talk about the sp the specifics of ownership. And yet, you'd think that that would be a quite notable omission on the part of socialists, wouldn't you? For a group of people who talk uh, quite a lot about the expropriation of the means of production. As I talked to Joe Guinan about at length last week, when it comes down to the particulars of nationalization, the left has uh, often embarrassed itself. If you look at the post-war labor government, 
these plans were often ad hoc and makeshift in a variety of ways, which caused all sorts of problems down the road. Uh, you'd think it would be high time for us to talk to start talking much more explicitly about ownership and how to how to gain ownership for the masses and, and democratize uh, those processes. But sell us on the importance of of ownership. It's something that is often overlooked, uh, particularly on the U.S. left. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would obviously agree with your analysis at the end there, but I think. Ownership matters fundamentally because property relations fundamentally shape political economic systems. They shape how power flows, how income flows, the forms of production, the forms of you know, work that are valued. And I think the issue in sort of our sort of form of capitalism, or indeed any form of capitalism, is that ownership concentrates private power and private decision making, either directly in the owners or in the sort of intermediary class of either the sort of financial institutional investors who, you know, the black crops of the world who hold vast sway in the sort of decision-making of, sort of major economic corporate units, or indeed the, this sort of class of, sort of executive class slash owners. They often, the boundaries often blurred. And I think if, we, if we're serious about challenging an extractive economy, we absolutely, we fundamentally have to get under the wire, get into the sort of hidden abode of ownership, which sort of shapes production clearly. And so I think it matters because ownership shapes control, it shapes income flows, it shapes wealth. And if we're serious about a different type of society, something that's systemic, we can't avoid taking on this question of who owns what, how does that ownership then shape how we act, how we live, how power flows through society, and what is the institutional and sort of technical systems and alternatives that we can then sort of propose? And I think crucially, how can we then link up this idea of a broadening out, a pluralization, a thicket of new models of ownership that are democratic by design, how can we link that up to political strategy, which says, actually, we create wealth in common, you know, whether it's wage or unwaged labor, we create wealth in common through human life, but also sort of, you know, nature. And we need new models of stewardship. We need a political strategy, which can make sure we all have a stake and a say in that, rather than this rentierist model, where companies are turned into engines of extraction, where private ownership of nature means that sort of the commons is sort of ransacked in a sort of unsustainable way to generate sort of value for the few, and in which sort of the social commons is sort of you know, privatized, and that wealth that is generated in common is sucked up into a narrow, unequal system. So I think fundamentally, if we are serious about transformation, if we're serious about transformation, and this is exactly what the new right sort of recognized in terms of privatization, if we're serious about transformation, we need to put ownership front and center. It seems to me that this transition, this transition in emphasis on the socialist left is the result of a, a, a ma the maturation of the left, moving away from these uh, – I'll say it. You don't have to co-sign this. I'll take the heat for it. But these more messianic insurrectionist models of social change that we have appropriated uh, in, in very romanticized and partial ways from the Russian Revolution in 1917. And of course, there have been many projects since then, particularly in the UK context, which have departed and diverged from that model in a variety of ways. But I think spelling this out for people, particularly in my, you know, in my, on my scene in the US left is really, is really crucial here about what this model of social change is and how it differs from more perhaps traditional models of social change that we have seen among the, the socialist sects that proliferate. Uh, across the, the, the past decades. Um, you can address that provocation if you'd like in the next question, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll be more specific here. What can a think tank accomplish? The think tank of, of the, the nature that you're starting here at Commonwealth and how, how can and will it be different from the more technocratic approaches to politics that we've seen in the past? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, on the, on the sort of point of sort of insurrectionary messianism, I mean, I think a, the balance of forces, I think, you know, you can say, well, we just don't quite have the courage, but I think balance of forces suggests that, that is a, a difficult strategy to pursue, even if it was the right one, but a, a very difficult one. But I think more importantly, what you then tend to see is, you know, and frankly, you don't even need sort of an insurrectionary moment. Let's just take the moment that Joe was talking about, 1945. What you tend to see when you suddenly have this like shift um, at the top and you sort of, the, the commanding heights are suddenly occupied, you then sort of, instead of sort of, invented pluralism replacing sort of forms of private concentration of power that you're seeking to replace you tend to then replicate the old model 
but just in sort of a slightly different form. So the functions don't generate different outcomes. The sort of, you know, the sort of lived experience is not necessarily different. So, you know, practically what that means is you know, when nationalization occurred in 1945, yes, absolutely, it did some things. And if you look at someone's like David Edgerton's uh, recent book on the, the rise and fall of the British nation, it's very clear that actually it was much more successful in some ways than the sort of popular narrative suggests uh, in the post-war period. But what it essentially did was swap the centralized bureaucracy of large private corporations for the centralized bureaucracy of, you know, the state and Whitehall. And that's obviously where the new left in the 19, late 1940s, the late 1950s, sort of GDH Cole, you know, an early Stuart Hall, etc. their critique was exactly that, that by just sort of simply sort of pinning all your hopes on a sort of precision strike on the existing institutions and then just like flipping the managers and the sort of hierarchy, but not really changing it, sort of the texture of feeling and how it operates, you know, that ultimately is not really the type of transition, the type of democratization that we're seeking. So I think the reality is that it will be a much more sort of, you know, it will be a sort of, a sort of social struggle and a political struggle and a technical struggle to try and rework, rewire property relations so that they are much more generative, so they're much more democratic, so they are sustainable in sort of the values that they are seeking to sort of generate through production. And that, you know, that necessarily, you know, it's, it's not as exciting, but it, I think it's much more tangible and meaningful to people's actually lives and the potential of the left to deliver that. In terms of, you know, the sort of Commonwealth as a sort of think tank. I mean, I think to give you one example, I think, you know, obviously, absolutely, I think one of the things we have to get into when we're talking about these big sort of systemic changes, and again, learning from what the new right and things like the Ridley plan did under sort of before Thatcher came to power, this is this, this planned sort of, you know, sort of strategic plan to sort of roadmap out how things would change. I think what we absolutely have to do is get under the bonnet and get into the technical weeds. You know, what is a left legal infrastructure that would actually be able to rewire company law, rethink property relations? What are the sort of financial metrics? What are the measurements of risk? How do you actually sort of, you know, how do you run a balance sheet of a public enterprise? How do you run balance sheets of, you know, a sort of network of cooperatives? These are really important technical questions that we actually need to really get into the sort of weeds of and that hopefully Commonwealth can sort of help do i mean there are lots of people doing that but hopefully help do that but i think we'll also try and be a little different in the sense of trying to explicitly sort of engage with some of the social movements some of the sort of practitioners you know the cooperative movements sort of community enterprise of sort of social org forms of organization so to give you one example uh, we published the other day a report by keir milburn and bertie russell on public common partnerships in place of public private partnerships to deliver sort of social infrastructures, you know, investment in the public realm. And that report, which sets out a new sort of architecture of ownership and control of sort of community assets, we have been working and got in touch with sort of Save Latin Village campaigns. This is getting quite into the weeds, but sort of Save Latin Village campaign is a community-based, sort of community-led campaign to save a sort of key sort of space and site in the sort of Latin American community in um, London from redevelopment where they'd be pushed out and squeezed out from the community. And so we worked with them to sort of like, they have been looking at the plan and feeding back and endorsing it ultimately. And so that's this, sort of, I guess, trying to take it out a little beyond, you know, here's a quite formal technical document that we send to politicians and then hoping that will then trickle down into change. We're trying to sort of reach out to practitioners and doers and work with the movement rather than just sort of speak to the movement. So bearing that narrative in mind, let's talk a little bit about the inclusive ownership funds that Commonwealth has been putting forward uh, lately. Uh, how, how do these fit into this broader kind of organic, technical, political aspects of uh, socialist transition? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, so the Inclusive Ownership Fund was something I developed uh, with a paper so co-authored with NEF uh, in the Cooperatives Unleashed paper I mentioned. And then Commonwealth itself is taking forward that idea, which you know a variant of it has been adopted by the Labour Party. And Bernie Sanders has also adopted in turn a variant of uh, Labour's uh, proposal. So what, what actually is the core of it? I mean, each of them is slightly different, but what is the core of it? Well, it's this idea that we need a new mechanism to broaden out and distribute company ownership and in terms of, of society-wide ownership and claims on wealth. And so what it requires is large companies, so which account for roughly you know, 50% of output, 45% of employment, to establish an inclusive ownership fund for their corporate group. 
which means the companies couldn't just like split it up into lots of small companies to avoid it. So a company would be required to establish an inclusive ownership fund. And then over time, sort of up to sort of 1% or 2%, depending on the plan, they would be required to issue up to 1% to 2% of outstanding equity, so the total amount of equity in a company, to the inclusive ownership fund, which would hold this equity as a new forms of collective property in trust for the workforce. So it couldn't be sold. You know, it's not individualized risk. It's very much collective property holding, taking sort of shares, you know, diluting shares from external shareholders, often very large institutional investors, and instead transferring it to this inclusive ownership fund. And that inclusive ownership fund would have trustees elected by the workforce. And that fund, which is sort of democratically controlled by the workforce, would have income rights and control rights equal to its share of ownership in the company. In other words, it would have, you know, if it was a sort of 10% fund, it would have 10% of voting rights in corporate governance decision-making and strategic, you know, AGMs, which would very often make it the very, sort of the largest single block of owner in any public company. And then it obviously sort of by redistributing income from sort of dividends issued out to external shareholders back to the workforce, it would be a way of sort of making sure that the wealth that's internally generated is shared by workers. And then this sort of Commonwealth proposal, and then, you know, I think this, this debate is a sort of big new institutional in, in, intervention, even though, you know, it has antecedents, for example, sort of the Meidner plan and some of the ideas around that. But, you know, what the key sort of question that Wizard was trying to say is that absolutely you should have firm-based ownership because that gives people a direct stake. It sort of puts companies in, in the hands of workers more directly. But that obviously wealth is sort of socially generated. It's not just workers in the particular firm they're in. And therefore, we're, what we're saying is that above a certain amount of dividends issued to workers, so, you know, the average worker, let's say, gets £500, above a certain amount, that should be a gradiated taxation on that, which then flows to social wealth fund. And so that the inclusive ownership fund would then sort of, at the firm level, redistribute wealth and power to ordinary workers. And then in sort of highly profitable firms, the inclusive ownership fund would help capitalise a social wealth fund, which will give everyone in society a stake in the economy, ownership, and therefore insert a mechanism for democratic control and a redistribution transferring of private and corporate wealth to public wealth. And I think that's a really important institutional turn in terms of how the economy is organised and where sort of voting rights and income rights in the economy subsist. I want to talk about the, the actual lived experience of one of these inclusive ownership funds for the workers, because we're, we're using a lot of, you know, we're talking about equities. We're talking about these sort of large macro sort of, I would say jargon. You're, you're breaking it down in a very accessible way, I think. But I want to talk a little bit more here in a second about what, what the, what life under and with an inclusive ownership fund would look like very concretely for people. But before we get there, let's talk more about the technical aspects so people are quite clear about this. What you seem to be proposing in, in the various writings that you've put together so far is a 500-pound cap, if I'm not sure. That's per year, yes? Um, anything above and beyond that goes into something that looks sort of like a sovereign wealth fund to be distributed um, as needed, as necessary across broader society, such that these policies will be affecting uh, a very small percentage of firms and yet a very large percentage of workers. Spell that out for us and then delineate for us, make some distinctions here. How does this differ from a tax and why not just tax the rich? Because I think I think the strategic element of these IOFs uh, is, is what's most fascinating to me. Yes, yeah, so if we take the sort of taxation question first and then work back into sort of the granularity of uh, what it means. So I think clearly one option would be sort of Okay, well, let's just sort of try and achieve the same ends of redistribution and sort of shifting in corporate decision making via taxation and via shifts in corporate governance. Now, I think both those things should be done. Uh, you know, we should have a sort of transformed corporate governance, which embeds labor and social and environmental interests and repurposes the company. And we should sort of, you know, obviously have a much more progressive tax system. But I think what those things don't do, which an ownership fund and sort of wider sort of institutions that seek to sort of reshape and transform property, is it doesn't really affect sort of the deep structural power that property gives and sort of orders in the economy. And so it's always a sort of after the fact intervention rather than a sort of systemic shift and a sort of new institutional trajectory in the economy. So the IOFs, you know, to begin with, yes, absolutely. They're sort of like, in some ways, you could maybe replicate some of their uh, outcomes, maybe. 
bias of just a bit of more tax, a bit more corporate governance. But you know, you still leave companies ultimately sort of owned and controlled normally by institutional investors, by financial markets, intermediated by sort of you know people external to the company. Whereas what you the ownership funds do is actually sort of shift ownership and create new constituencies, new publics who control and sort of can just define what value is, what the purpose of a company is. Now, whether that's firm-based ownership in which the workforce is the sort of constituency, or whether it's the public for the, through a sort of social wealth fund in which the ownership at scale allows you to strategically move it. So I think the first point is taxation is potentially one route to achieve some of the sort of redistributive ends. But I think we want to go sort of much deeper to the root of, well, what, you know, where does private power lie in the economy? It, you know, often lies through ownership and the intermediation of ownership by institutional investors and sort of wealthy owners. So let's begin to sort of have a strategy for getting into that and reshaping it and democratizing it and broadening that power base out to, so we can open up a new trajectory for where the economy is going. In terms of the lived experience, I mean, I think it's it's important, you know, with both the ownership fund, but also sort of, you know, wider sort of interventions is that there is no silver bullet. You know, this goes back to that messianic point. There is no silver, or at least for me, there is no silver bullet. And that what we need is sort of overlapping sort of lattice, sort of, you know, sort of an, an embroidery, a stitching together, a conscious design of democracy, of sustainability, of equity and equality, and sort of repar reparations, frankly, both social and ecological, into sort of our economic and social institutions. And so, you know, in the lived experience, what it means is in the, the workplace, it means that you, you know, you would literally have more money in the in your pocket at the end of most years. You'd have a vote, you'd have a stake, and you'd have a say. And you'd be able to sort of say, actually, this company is increasingly sort of run for and by us, sort of the workforce, along with sort of, you know, a what outside stake by a social wealth fund, rather than controlled by and for sort of BlackRock or whoever it might be. Now, clearly, there's a question around sort of, well, you know, what about pensioners? They might sort of own it indirectly. But I think there are lots of, sort of we could maybe get into that if you'd like. But I think, you know, having a stake, having a say, having more money in your pocket, having a vote, having a sense that this is our collective a commons, we're commoning the company by sort of saying this is a sort of shared institutional resource we need to manage together over time. I think that can sort of both materially and sort of psychologically shift the nature of what enterprise is um, and begin to sort of create very different values and very different sort of forms of sort of enterprise in society but i think absolutely it has to take part alongside you know the extension of collective bargaining the repurposing of you know what is the economy for sort of repurposing work towards social environmental sort of forms of work you know sort of a decolonizing economics that sort of takes seriously sort of you know how we marginalized groups are sort of structurally excluded from these questions then sort of design in ways that can redress that you know needs to sort of take you know things like Grace's work around finance, et cetera, et cetera. There are a whole range of things that have to be sort of interlocking with changes in ownership. On its own, it can't you know, do as much. If it's a complementary strategy to broaden out, expand and democratise sort of both the process of wealth creation, but then how it's distributed in a sustainable way, both sort of sustainable in terms of equity, but sustainable in terms of ecological footprint as well, then I think that's when you begin to get really talking. You know, you're actually sort of having having to begin to change the material conditions and sort of the structure of feeling of work, I guess, in sort of contemporary life. Well put, and you really addressed an aspect of that question that I hadn't intended. I was that that was in, in part a leading question, as they say in the biz. Uh, I'm guilty of those quite and often, quite a lot. So let me be more explicit about exactly what I was trying to get at here. The the really, uh, I think the real strategic and 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 smart approach to these IOFs is that they don't disrupt investment, and and it's not something that socialists think a lot about because you know we're not really concerned about cap, uh, capitalist profitability. That's not really high on our that's not really high on our agenda of concerns. We're worried about you know maintaining and and securing the human rights and dignity of you know humankind, but. Nonetheless, if, if a labor government were to be ushered in as early as this fall, uh, maintaining some kind of stability in the economy would be quite important because we know all too well about capital flight and all of the risks of capital strike and profitability crises that left governments face in the 1960s and 70s. Talk to me about IOFs in terms of that as a strategic element here in terms of transferring ownership without 
radically and drastically disrupting the f- the day to day functioning of capital. Which you know, as much as we may hate to say it, uh, we will have to preserve capitalist profitability in the interim while we produce this kind of lattice work of socialist transition that you just spelled out. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the one of the sort of strengths of ownership for funds or these sort of dilutory sort of um, mechanisms around shifting ownership but by requiring companies to sort of issue equity is exactly that. It doesn't affect the working capital of companies. It just shifts sort of the ownership of them. So companies, you know, it's not if you have a tax, then the companies actually have much less to, you know, invest in, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas this is just a sort of reshaping and expanding out of property relations, which are obviously obviously sort of socially defined and sort of, you know, something that sort of social power can expand or contract as as democratic sort of power defines. So I think there's a question of sort of speed and scale then. I think it you know, I think if you sort of set the issuance rates of the the extent to which, you know, the fund would scale too high, too quickly, then I think you would see potential problems. But I think the sort of rate it's set, so one percent a year, two percent a year and some other plans, but one percent according to the Labour Party's official plan. Or its actual plan, you know, it's not. There's nothing so secret about it. One um, percent a year, you know, in terms of you know, profitability rates, etc., returns. That is not nearly enough to sort of you know rock the boat, shake the boat, particularly in a sort of very unstable global economy. And so, you know, the beauty of this is that actually the actual sort of hit in terms of risk is potentially like much less than you know you would imagine, despite sort of you know it's both incremental but transformative. And that's you know one of its appeals, and you know it's it's definitely it's definitely a balance, definitely a balance. I think you know some people would say let's go faster, let's go quicker, let's go for ownership of private companies beyond the utility sector. But I think it strikes a sort of balance between maintaining the levels of investment that we need. You know, just looking at sort of there's there's, there's such an investment demand out there, particularly given sort of the sort of scale of decarbonisation we need. Then clearly, like private investment will be an important part of that in the transition at the very least, as you say. But you know, ownership funds are a way of transforming ownership and then the flows of wealth and control that flow from that without necessarily disrupting investment. We'll be returning to these inclusive ownership funds in the latter half of the episode. I'm going to save some of the real curveball questions for the patrons out there. So if you're not a patron, be sure to join up at patreon.com slash pundits. Just like Commonwealth, we are trying to forge a new post-neoliberal uh, agenda here on Dead Pundit Society in our own way from a socialist media perspective. Uh, so Matt's going to be joining our patrons for some pitched questions here, and we're going to be dealing with some of the pitfalls, traps, and contradictions of these approaches, which uh, there are many, as I'm, I'm sure you are well aware, uh, Matthew. And uh, we're preparing for those. We've got battle plans. We're ready, folks. But we're going to spell it out for you in the latter half. Let's move along to some of the other more ambitious and exciting plans that you have in the works there at Commonwealth. It's my understanding that you are working on uh, something like a Green New Deal for the UK context. Talk to us about what you have in store there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like uh, <laughs> who isn't working on a Green New Deal these days? Um, maybe it's like a red new deal. I don't know. No, yes. I mean, so we are. <laughs> I like it. We are. Um, we are indeed working on a green deal um, for the UK, which is you know that is exactly the example of that sort of pollination and cross exchange um, between the US and the UK. I mean, I think clearly there's like really exciting social movements on this side of the pond driving forward sort of you know in the sort of ecological crisis and the sort of systemic response that needs to then to flow if we're going to sort of ameliorate sort of the sort of absolutely like traumatic effects, um, particularly sort of in terms of global equity that are like to happen without action. But nonetheless, you know, without frankly AOC and sort of the sort of you know sunrise movement and you know sitting down in Nancy Pelosi's office, would the sort of sudden coalescing of policy of programmatic intention have emerged? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, that's an interesting aside about cross-pollination. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got Extinction Rebellion. And has, what, what role has that played? Uh, spell that out for my U.S. audience who may not be as familiar because it's, it, it's, in some, it's quite similar, both the advantages of the movement and, and the, the shortcomings and the shortfalls of, of, of that approach as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that Extinction Rebellion seems not to have sort of translated sort of as well as uh, – so, you know, in Europe, it's quite a sort of big thing outside of the U.K., but it, it seems to be much less of a thing – in the US, um, I mean, the Extinction Rebellion has sort of 
been sort of heavily praised, but also heavily critiqued. And, you know, both sides of those coins are probably right in terms of some of its mechanisms, some of its blind spots, some of its weaknesses, but also some of its sort of strengths in terms of sort of, you know, sort of a, a, its mechanisms, its, its, its roots sort of drawing attention to it and helping scale up this, this you know, critical, you know, the overwhelming point about existence today is that, you know, 500 years of colonial violent forms of extraction and sort of, you know, sort of the forms of economy we have today have led to a point in which ecological crisis is so severe that without sort of action on systemic sort of world making new shifting scales, I do think that, you know, we are facing sort of deep trauma, not just in human, but non-human like alike. And obviously that sort of trauma will be born very, very unequally in a sort of replication of those patterns of inequality that have got us here in the first place. Um, so, you know, Extinction Rebellion, interesting, um, and they've sort of, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're almost their theatricality has definitely surfaced and helped push it. But I think some of the interesting things have also been really strong social movements around so the UK Green New Deal, um, some incredible activists uh, involved in that. I don't know if it, you know, there was this dinner the other day, this like, almost parodic um, moment in which sort of this sort of, uh, mansion house speech which is this annual set piece by the sort of chancellor of the exchequer the sort of you know the treasury minister in the uk where he sort of gives this dinner to like the city elite and there was sort of the sort of many of the sort of tory party were there and the sort of there were greenpeace activists have sort of did a demo sort of being like this is a sort of climate crisis and there's this six like extraordinary sort of like basically assault on one of the activists by um I don't know if that cross you know and it, and then sort of but some of those people including sort of people like hannah martin are involved in the UK Green New Deal, which is this extraordinarily successful linking up of social movements, of the youth strike, of, you know, sort of a whole panoply of activists, through to things like Labour for a Green New Deal, which is this very interesting, sort of, you know, very impressive in some ways, sort of new formation that's driving sort of climate ambition, through, frankly, also to, I mean, it's interesting, some of the trade unions, which is sort of a fundamental part of sort of political coalition that needs to be sort of navigated for any successful Green New Deal, they are very interestingly begun to move and to recognise that actually sort of Green New Deal will require the scaling up, ramping up incredible sort of investment and in sort of forms of democratic industrial strategy that deliberately seek to restructure the economy to expand new forms of work that should be meaningful, well-paid, sort of unionised. So there's an interesting coalition building up there. So I think there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, and then... What was the actual question? Sorry, I sort of lost my track. <laughs> I don't remember the actual question, but talk to us about the the ins and outs of your Green New Deal. That's something that's yeah. infamously, you know, tied to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and now the Sunrise Movement, which which is a really important project. It's funny you mentioned you mentioned their name, and my phone buzzed, and I got an email from them. I get like eight emails from them a day, and and they're they're really uh, drawing attention to the lack of attention uh, mm. in the democratic debates to climate change. They said about six minutes was dedicated to climate change, which is clearly insufficient for the you know the the cataclysmic nature of what we're facing. Uh, so it's really exciting that you guys are talking about this over there in the British context. And I think really, you know, the, the Labor Manifesto, if I'm not mistaken, has some really ambitious plans uh, as to how to roll out this Green New Deal and, and uh, retrofit uh, houses and, 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 you know, jumpstart jobs in the economy on the basis of this green, of, of this green uh, economic, you know, political revolution. Uh, what's your contribution to this project? So our report is coming out. It might actually be out by the time listeners are listening to this. Um, so we might be speaking to the future, speaking backwards from the future. Not quite sure which. What we're saying is, A, this is clearly an emergency of unparalleled scale. B, that emergency is rooted in our form of capitalism, form of extractivism. That needs to be challenged if we've got any hope of doing this. C, the UK has recently legislated for net zero emissions by 2050. So sort of notionally our sort of contribution to sort of carbon emissions would be zero by then but there are what we're saying is that actually when you unpick what net zero means it can be something that is you know very radical and progressive if that net zeroing is through sort of you know rewilding sort of the growth of carbon sinks through nature in the uk but then actually if it's about offsetting via overseas action then it becomes actually very problematic and continues those patterns of sort of global inequality that you know, the Green New Deal has to be global in orientation, has to be decolonizing in orientation and action, otherwise it won't work. And then I think what we've what we've sort of basically the, sort of the core of it is like a series of 20 chapters or so from practitioners, activists, academics, policy thinkers, basically looking at the various sectors. So everything from housing, 
transport, agriculture, industry, etc., etc., through to the institutions that we need to sort of transform, democratize, and make sure that transformation is equitable and is driven by and shaped by and in the interests of you know, ordinary people and particularly communities, whether it's workers, whether it's you know, people of color, sort of sharp end of climate crisis, whether it's sort of, you know, communities that risk being offshore, so to speak, by um, the response to climate change if they work in you know, carbon heavy sectors, et cetera, making sure that those people are at the very heart of driving change. And so that's, you know, so we're looking at things like central banking, financial institutions, trade unions and the future of work, et cetera. And each of those chapters is setting out a roadmap to bring together the best thinkers to think, well, what are the institutional changes we need to drive decarbonisation radically and justly in these sectors? And it is set against an overarching argument, which I guess is sort of multiple. And I guess, you know, you, there's sort of a multi-stage Green New Deal in my mind. There's sort of the immediate triage we need to do and the contribution that the UK should do, the oversized contribution the UK should do to decarbonising quickly because we both have the capacity and historical responsibility. But then I think there's almost a second stage to the Green New Deal where we sort of go beyond green Keynesianism in sort of Jeff Mann's uh, phrase. And I think that is about actually resurrecting the tools that neoliberalism has sought to long suppress, you know, collective action, democratic planning, a pluralistic ecology of ownership, ambitious and directional sort of program of public investment to scale new forms of public goods, new forms of communal luxury that are sort of low in terms of goods consumed, but high in terms of the sort of forms of life, the forms of human flourishing that that investment will enable. And I think ultimately there's sort of a repurposing of, you know, what is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of investment to sort of centre, you know, there's a really good um, piece by Alyssa Battistoni, one of the sort of uh, Jacobin uh, Green New Deal sort of editorial team, I think called like living not surviving from a couple of years ago but talks about repurposing of work so to be like you know sort of centering on social reproduction centering on ecological reproduction rather than sort of private accumulation and i think ultimately that is the green new deal is you know it it contains multitudes it's sort of whitman-esque in that sense but you know it's and it's multi-stage and the first stage is obviously like the scaling and ramping up of very significant investment driven by the public sector but also i think you know involving reshaping private finance and reshaping the sort of directional role of the central bank to mobilize resources on an unprecedented scale to create the sort of new world making that can allow, allow us all to live and flourish, not just in sort of you know, the global north, but allow us all to live and flourish in the decades and you know, frankly centuries ahead. Because I think you know, without that, we are currently on course by the end of the century to be roughly three to four degrees higher than the industri- pre-industrial temperatures. And that calls into question human civilization as we know it and it condemns with certainty millions and millions of people to ill health death and you know people sort of non-human lives and habitats in ways that i think you know should be the the you know it is obviously the fundamentals of moral ethical social political challenge and the climate crisis is ultimately political you know it is rooted in institutions that we have the capacity to change if we can mobilize coalitions and programs that are institutionally inventive enough to democratize and reshape how economy operates so that's kind of a broad you know sort of this idea of denaturalizing the economy sort of removing it from the realm of being you know what you know this idea that the economy is almost a sublime object in the uh, quince of odin's phrase and actually saying actually no we can intervene we must intervene and we actually do have the tools to invest reshape restructure direct the economy at scale at competing scales you know from the local to the national to the international in ways that can provide the conditions for human flourishing in a way that is re-embedded within natural systems and sustainable. Well put. It's an ambitious project. It uh, touches nearly every aspect of our society, uh, the way we organize and the way we interact with ourselves and our environment amongst ourselves and our institutions. I'm really excited to see this report come out. If it is out by the time this podcast lands, I will certainly link to it in the show notes. If not, I will blast it out to my networks because I think that project and the chapters therein are representative of this new wave of thinking on the left. It's something that we really need to take up in earnest uh, across the world, but especially in the United States, given that you know 70% of my audience is based in the U.S. 
we need to start thinking very concretely about these institutional transformations. And that's not to say that, you know, as, as we mentioned previously, that uh, this will be a technocratic sort of top-down transition. But we need to start integrating these ideas for institutional transformation with the dynamism and the creativity that exists in the grassroots and, and the kind of act, actions that people are already undertaking and people are ready uh, to undertake. They're sort of chomping at the bit, if you will, to – to live better lives and to organize in themselves collectively in different ways. And uh, Commonwealth is a really exciting uh, project. I think I'm, I, I, I'm not just blowing smoke here. Um, although I do that, you know, I, I, I get to invite whoever the hell I want on this show, Matthew, you know, so I, I tend to, I t- you know, great, might shock you know, great power comes great responsibility. That's right. I tend to, you know, bring on people who I enjoy. And so I, I if I sound overly, uh, <laughs> Uh, if I had overly admiration, whatever point being is that this is a really important project. People should emulate this and I'm, I'm happy to blast it out. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's wind this up for the masses out here and then we'll transition to a little ending here where we get into the fine grain details of these policies and these politics for the patrons. Any more parting shots in terms of what you're trying to pull off for Commonwealth? I know your intro, your introductory statement, your mission statement, if you will, was very ambitious. People should go out there and read that. I will link to it. You had a really great video which captures the the sort of zeitgeist and the urgency of the moment. Really aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> I like what you guys are pulling off there. Um, as someone who's trying to to have a similar kind of reach and a similar kind of approach in in a different way, of course, uh, I admire that w- what you're doing there. You've got a certain style and panache that's sorely missing on many parts of the left. Uh, it's important. Branding matters. So talk to us about that. What is the Commonwealth brand? What is the vision for uh, a new politics that you're trying to put forward? Well, I'm glad you you know being described. Something filled with panache is, you know, we'll have to get that out of a uh, you know, postcard or something. Or well, people still use postcards these days. Uh, <laughs> you may have just, you may have just lost your panache cred there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Calling, panache, calling the postcard. You know, panache on page, but not into reality. <laughs> um, no, so I mean, obviously, the design aesthetic um, is, you know, linked. You know, in some ways, kind of feeds through. You know, I guess this will not be that hugely relevant to guess your listeners, but things like the World Transformed, which mm. is a political festival in the yeah. UK, should very be, much should be relevant to my listeners. By the way, so I, I do w- think one. Of the, yeah. I really think one of the things that absolutely the US left could do with, um, and I know sort of there are the Jacobin style, um, and there are you know obviously there are various festivals like this, but like bringing something like the World Transformed to the US, a political festival where you can sort of have that sort of relational. So physicality that then sort of breeds the type of relationship or sort of helps support the types of relationships and sort of, you know, connections and sort of comradeship that I think can be incredibly useful in this in this type of endeavor. I really think that would be my, one of my key sort of takeaways or lessons from from for the US left. But um, so in terms of design, we sort of draw on that sort of uh, that aesthetic um, and a sense of, you know, a sense of the possibility, a sense of the modern. Um, and yeah, I do think actually, you know, we've got a report out the other the other day, um, Public Commons Partnership, which is really beautiful, beautifully designed. And I think when the Green New Deal comes out, do check out the website, which is common-wealth.co.uk, because we're going to have a sort of mini GND city of the future that you'll be able to explore. So it's been designed by a sort of architect from a sort of autonomous tradition, which is looking at what would a Green New Deal city that's, you know, been transformed by investment, transformed by a new sort of culture and politics of work, of sort of social commoning, what would it look like? And you can kind of see very directly sort of the design sort of future that um, we are working towards. So do check that out. And the other thing I'd say, you know, very much in terms of US audience, we will be putting out later this year um, a paper with the Democracy Collaborative looking at what would our variant of an inclusive ownership fund look like in the US. So it will be have numbers for you know well, how much would the average American sort of benefit from this? It would be looking at sort of some of the sort of legal and constitutional issues around sort of how would this work and be sort of institutionalized. And it'll be quite a deep dive into sort of the arguments in favor of institutions of economic democracy and democratization of ownership and control at the firm level and also sort of more widely at the social level. So there's lots of things to to look out for, even though we're sort of based over here, um, there's plenty of crossover, cross-feeding. And I think also even in the Green New Deal thing, we've actually got a couple of couple of pieces by US-based US based 
writers, which are definitely worth checking out. So one by Alyssa uh, and the rest of the sort of Green New Deal team, which um, uh, the Jacobin Green New Deal editorial team, which is a really fantastic piece on what does a sort of green internationalism, a sort of radical sort of collectivity amongst sort of peoples um, uh, beyond the nation state look like in terms of responding to climate crisis. And then also a piece by a couple of really brilliant uh, policy thinkers at Democracy Collaborative. Uh, and they are looking at what are the types of transnational economic interventions around ownership, around sort of ownership of um, public corporations and sort of extractive companies. Can that play a part in a new sort of ecology of ownership that brings us into sort of sustainable boundaries and limits? Um, so there's plenty to look out for. Um, and yeah, do just go on the website and have a check of the design and, you know, see if it's panache or whether that's, you know, <laughs> overhyping. Um, hopefully it'll be the former, not the latter. But if it is the latter, blame Adam, not Commonwealth. Um, but blame the hype of- man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I will be linking to all this stuff as it, as it comes available to the audience. One final, final question here, because this is something I've been pushing and, and watching uh, the Democratic debates in the United States the last two nights. This is more apparent than ever. And I've been feeling this prior to, to those debates, and now I'm stronger than ever in this conviction that the excitement, the dynamism, the inertia of, of I, the the panache <laughs> – I'm just going to throw that in as, as often as possible, Matthew uh, – of ideas rests on the far left, right, on the socialist left, on the progressive left. We are owning this moment and we are setting this, the tone and and uh, in, a, in a really exciting way. And of course, that does not mean that, you know, it's inevitable that we will gain power. Like there's no inevitability to this. We're, we're swimming upstream, as it were, against, the you know, the logic of capital and against, uh, you know, the, our, our lack and absence of resources. But talk, just kind of finish off here and just riff for us about how Commonwealth fits into this and how you see this this new moment sort of uh, you know what is what what does all this mean i feel like i feel like uh, an explorer it's a pardon the colonial and <laughs> barbaric connotations of this uh, analogy that i'm about to call forward here but i feel much like an explorer who has uh, set foot on a new land not really knowing what's ahead but 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 understanding you know very deeply that there's something very new uh, about to about to be you know embarked upon uh, well what does this all mean to you make sense of this for me being that you are very much an actor on the cutting edge here uh yeah i mean it's, it's an interesting your, your metaphor is interesting it kind of speaks to the sort of, sort of the deep need to sort of decolonize economics culture you know that even our metaphorical <laughs> frames that's right um, but, but um, no no more columbus metaphors on dps yeah, exactly. i, I, I yeah, apologize for that one yeah <laughs> so, um so in the US, sort of stepping back, I mean, I think, I think the scale of social trauma um, it is far more advanced. Scale of extraction. I mean, I'm sure your listeners will be aware of that statistic that Matt Brunig, um, you know, sort of a, you know, brilliant sort of researcher and writer on questions of ownership, sort of put out the other day around sort of what was it? So sort of the richest one percent in the US have got a trillion dollars wealth since 1990 and the bottom 90% are actually poorer than they are in terms of wealth. So I mean, something like that, but it's, it's sort of a phenomenal sort of symptom of social trauma and sort of uh, not just atrophy, sort of, you know, real sort of breakdown in sort of what most people conventionally would see as like a just sort of uh, economic system. So I think there's like sources of hope exactly in the sort of the scale of um, crisis, but clearly you're right that you can't rely on that. You need to begin. You need to organise and sort of thicken out that. But I think, you know, the left, I think, in the US has a sort of huge opening in terms of an offer that actually works the majority of American people relative to sort of a, you know a sort of democracy that seems very much sort of at a risk of sort of plutocratic plunder. Well, it's already been plundered by plutocrats, but that sort of it's you know can be hollowed out completely and sort of transition from a sort of democracy to some form of oligarchy in, in sort of real practical terms, obviously it's sort of have the functioning of sort of elections and everything, but sort of the sort of scale of economic power. But I think then sort of rooting it back, I mean, I think there is, you know, there is a sort of, there is a historical analogy. I mean, you know, the US, and it's obviously a very difficult, I mean, it's the scale of the task and it's a difficult analogy therefore, but, you know, the US has before radically transformed forms of property relations, which are 
and well, not you know are not just stunt human flourishing, but are abhorrent and explicitly enchained humans. So obviously, you know, the eighteen sixties, it was quite fragile. It wasn't a perfect democracy, but clearly, ultimately, American democracy decided to use its force and its social power and ultimately you know, forms of violence at mass application to destroy a form of property relations that had been hitherto fundamental to most human societies for for you know, all of human existence, slavery. You know? So and then it, it, so and obviously reconstruction failed and sort of racialized inequalities um, you know, are fundamental to American society ever since, of course, on and before that. And, but I think that lesson of the Civil War is one sort of resource of sort of lingerie hope in that American society has once before, and you know, the New Deal and the Great Society are sort of you know, if you look at Ira Katz Nelson's work, etc., obviously they're sort of problematized, uh, rightly so. But you know, the New Deal and Great Society are one form of a partial example, and certainly so the Civil War is one form of example in which American democratic power was ultimately sort of in imperfect ways, you know, but you know, in ways that sort of someone like Eric Foner would sort of say, would was mobilized to basically break a form of population and scale a new form of society imperfectly. But that is a deep sort of this is a bit of a sort of tangent, but I think there's a sort of interesting historical analogy. What needs to be done? There needs to be the mobilization of democratic power that can challenge the sort of concentrations or forms of property and control in American society to fundamentally transform it, to fundamentally break it open, to fundamentally restructure and reshape and democratize and give power and control and dignity back to ordinary Americans and indeed, you know, people beyond America's shores in which America's implications of all forms of inequalities and violence. Um, and that's the challenge. And I think, you know, that is a deep challenge and a difficult one. And so sort of the opponents of any sort of even moderate transition are obviously well dug in. But the question is, what are they dug in beneath? You know, it's like, you know, they dug in and they look like they're secure, but actually how deep those foundations go. And I think that, you know, I do think the wind is in the sails of the US left and actually in some ways much, you know, in some ways much more strongly than in the UK, because I do think, you know, we haven't mentioned it, but sort of, you know, issues around things like Brexit do complicate and make difficult um, the political pathways for the left and so progressives and you know coalitions in the UK. Whereas I think the US left, I think you know, it's a long way to go, but actually I do think there is a real potential there for the mobilisation of popular power to transform over time, and it will be very hard work, and it will be imperfect but transform and reshape how sort of, you know, how, how do you cash out sort of the rhetorical promise of the American dream in ways that are not disfigured by its current realities? You know, I think there is a potential there. Well said. There are historical antecedents. And just yeah, aside, I don't know if that's a sort of ridiculous tangent that just doesn't work at all. But, you know, well, no, I, do, I, no, I, you know, that I, again, I asked you to explain something to me in, in a way that was very novel and, and, and you know, exciting, exciting. Uh, but you you very, I think, very rightfully so appealed to historical examples to demonstrate that, yes, we are on the brink of something potentially very transformative, but uh, we've transformed things before and we can do it again. And I think one thing to end on, I would say, because I think, you know, we, it's obviously rising up our politics, but never enough, is that those those analogies that just used occurred in a sort of period of relative, not total, you know, obviously it's sort of Oklahoma Dust Bowl is an example of sort of the Anthropocene intruding into sort of politics. But, you know, they, they, those examples occurred in periods of relative climatic stability. That era of stability is over and will never come back in our lifetimes and it will worsen you know, every day we exist. Um, and that, I think, is a fundamental sort of and uncertain, a, form, a fundamental form of uncertainty and destabilization of our politics. And therefore, even if you want, you know, even if you wanted to, things can't, can't stay the same, you know. And the, therefore, the challenge of the left is you know, not to give in to sort of technocratics of anti democratic managerialism and, and try and serve, you know, a climate Leviathan style sort of maneuver in the face of climate crisis is exactly to say we need to be a conscious designer of democracy a collectively conscious designer of democracy into everyday life driven by and for ordinary people um because otherwise you know climate crisis will overwhelm us and those who will you know suffer most are certainly not you and i um and therefore you know we have a sort of absolute imperative to act in ways that can can drive that transition justly and swiftly um because you know change is coming whether we like it or not because the question of how do we respond to that at scale and democratically? Well said. 
Really great way to wrap up our A-side chat here. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Everybody check out Commonwealth. I will put all of those links in the show notes and look out for really big things, not only from Commonwealth, but also this newly emerging transatlantic left. Matthew Lawrence, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother...